And today we step into 2014, the first Sunday of 2014, and we're going to do so in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses. The title of the message is Let's Build. Caleb, would you run back and get the outlines, please? If anyone would like an outline, please raise your hand, and we'll be sure to get one of those to you uh, this morning. Title of the message, Let's Build. It's a new year. Stick those hands up and Caleb will come around. Typically speaking, when New Year comes, people talk about New Year's resolutions. Now, I think most most of American culture is kind of burned out on New Year's resolutions. I don't hear a whole lot about them anymore. And I personally got burned out on New Year's resolutions um, when I was a, a child. Um, the whole idea of resolving to do something, there is something good about the new year, about something new, about about um, a line of demarcation wherefore you can you can determine to do things differently. You can determine to improve yourself. These are good things. But when a resolution is simply motivated by the change of the calendar, there's there's a level of superfluity to it. There's a surface level nature to resolutions when they're just founded upon something as simple as the calendar ticking over from 2013 to 2014. But in the Scriptures we see resolutions. We see times where the Scriptures call on us to be purposed, to be resolved to do something. And the Scriptures always give us a basis upon which to do it. The basis upon which you may have set New Year's resolutions in your life, and I'm not telling you you shouldn't or anything, it's just not for me. Uh, the basis upon which you set a New Year's resolution was the changing of the calendar from 2013 to 2014. It's a new year, it's a blank slate, anything can happen, let's get busy. Well, today I am going to encourage us as a church to get busy to make this the best year Legacy Baptist Church has ever had, to do something special in this calendar year. But I'm not going to do it based upon the calendar year. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to give you the foundation of 2013 going into 2014. I'd like us to look at a stronger foundation, a deeper foundation, a foundation that should motivate us in a much deeper way, in a continual way, one that's not just going to pass as January Transitions into February and March, and next thing you know, it's December of 2014, and it's 2015 already. But something deeper, something stronger, something more rooted than just the calendar ticking over. And that's what we're going to look at in Second Peter today. Excuse me, in First Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bibles open, look with me in First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. The Scriptures say, Wherefore laying aside all malice. Now, when you see that word wherefore, or if you see the word therefore, you should always wonder why it's there. The old saying goes, if you see a wherefore, or if you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. There's context. It's denoting context. Something came before that is the premise for what is about to be spoken. And so that wherefore is very important. And let's talk about what it's there for. And so here is the context this morning. The context is 1 Peter chapter 1. In verses 1 and 2, 1 Peter gives an introduction. He says that 
he introduces himself. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so he introduces himself. In verses 3 through 9, he relays the blessings that are upon those strangers who he says in verse 2 are elect. They are those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And he relates the blessing that is upon them who have hope in Christ and that blessing that even compels them in the midst of their trials and in the midst of their difficulties and in the midst of their troubles to keep a hope and earnest expectation in God. There's a tremendous blessing, he says, upon those who have hope in Christ in the midst even of trial. And in verses 10 through 12, he elaborates upon that salvation, that hope that we have in Christ. He says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. There's a heritage of hope. All the way since the prophets, as far back as uh, Adam and Eve and Seth and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Solomon, all the way through the, the Old Testament prophets, there has been a hope. They have searched diligently for the meaning of some of the things they've read in Scripture. For the meaning that all the world will come under Christ, uh, will come unto the Messiah. For the meaning that, um, the Gentiles will be brought in to the kingdom. All of these things that they knew would happen, but they didn't quite understand them. It didn't quite make sense. What about Israel? What about God's promises He's already made to them? And so he says there's been a strong heritage of hope in God's people from the beginning. They haven't always understood every element of it, but there's been a strong heritage. In verses 13 through 22, there's that call unto purity and holiness in response to God's grace. Peter says, I'm writing to this church, to those who are saved. Because you're saved, you have this tremendous hope, even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of trouble. As a matter of fact, that trial and that trouble is working in you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What a hope. This is a hope that God's people have been looking for throughout the ages. And then he says, and it's a hope that ought to make us pure. He says in verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. Have this hope eternally. And then he says in verse 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy for I am holy. So this hope, this foundational hope should compel us unto holiness, righteousness, obedience to God. And notice what it says in verses 23 through 25. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withereth, and the flower fadeth, thereof fadeth, falleth away, excuse me, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the kicker. Here's the foundation. Here's, here's what Peter is saying. You have a hope, an expectation. You're looking toward heaven one day. You're looking toward your redemption, your salvation, your inheritance. All of those things that God has promised. All of those things that, that, that come with going home. You ever just want to go home to heaven? You ever just get homesick? I get homesick from time to time. I just want to go home. I want to walk through those pearly gates where there's no war, 
where there's no tears, where there's no pain, where there's no sorrow, no one to disappoint you, no one to hurt you. You're home. You're safe. That's the hope that we have. And why can we call it hope? Expectation. Why can we call it a well-founded expectation? Because even when the grass withers, even when the flowers fall away, the Word of God is still standing. Morning turns to evening, turns to night, turns to morning. Summer becomes fall, becomes winter, becomes spring. Nations rise, nations fall. Technology comes, technology goes. People live, people die. God's Word remains forever. God's Word stands. God's Word does not fade. It doesn't fade in effectiveness. It doesn't fade in purpose. It doesn't fade in truth. It's there. It remains. It will always remain. And because of that, we can be assured that no matter what happens around us, as we sang just a few minutes ago, this is my Father's world. Though the wrong be off so strong, God is the ruler yet. No matter what is happening around us, we can be sure of one thing, that every promise of God will come to pass. And that if you are in Christ, if you are a born-again believer this morning, you'll be in heaven with Him one day. Bar none. That's the foundation upon which we step into our sermon this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. And he says, Wherefore, because of this, because the grass withers and the flowers fall away, but God's Word stands forever, he says there's some things that we need to do and we need to lay some things aside. That word laying aside literally means to put away or to cast off. It's not that it falls away, but we push it away. We put it away. We cast it off. We set it aside. He says, wherefore, laying aside, you're setting down something in deference to something else. And as believers, there's a list of things that he says we need to lay aside in verse 1. He says, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. Malice, literally a word that means depravity, guile, trickery, hypocrisies, falseness, envies, ill will or jealousy, evil speakings, defamation. These are things that because of what we have in Christ, because of the hope that we have in Him, we lay these things aside. We lay aside the deceit. We lay aside the ill will. We lay aside any hypocrisy. We don't fake it. We don't fake our Christian life. We don't fake who we are or what we are. We don't speak ill will of people. We don't defame people. We lay these things aside. But you know, there's a funny thing about laying things aside in our lives. Maybe you've seen this as you've gone into a New Year's resolution phase before. You say, I'm going to, this is, this is the new year. It's time to start afresh and anew. I'm going to get rid of this. I'm going to stop eating cake every day or whatever the case may be. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose this much weight. I'm going to, I'm gonna get my finances in order. I'm going to, this is gonna be the year that I do fill in the blank. And in order to do that, you lay things aside. I'm not gonna do that anymore. But you know, if you don't fill it with something else, if you don't lay it aside and then take up something else to replace it, then you're probably gonna find 
yourself less inclined to maintain, right? It's that way in our Christian lives as well. I am not going to gossip anymore. And so you lay aside gossiping. But if you don't fill that with something, if you don't fill that void with righteousness, if you don't pick up speaking kindly one to another, then you're going to find yourself falling back into the old habits. Back into the old ways. A putting off generally helps when we have a putting on as well. And so he says we're laying things aside. We're laying aside the malice and the guile and the hypocrisy and the envy and the evil speaking, but we're going to replace it with something. We're going to put something on in its place. And look what it says in verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. This word desire literally means to intensely crave. Intensely crave what? The sincere milk of the word. That word sincere there is literally in the Greek the word that means pure. The pure word of God. Not a word of God tainted with error. Not a word of God tainted with compromise. But the pure word of God. God says it. This is what God says. And this is what he means. We're not going to twist it. Notice, notice how these two, the putting off and the putting on, come together. We're laying aside trickery. Hypocrisy. We're not going to read the Bible and impose our ideas on the Bible. We're going to lay that aside. We're not going to read the Bible and have ignorant questions that do nothing but gender strifes. We're going to lay that aside and we're going to desire the true, the pure Word of God. The Word of God without taint of error. The Word of God without taint of compromise. We lay aside these elements of the flesh and we put on a intense desire, a craving for the pure, sincere Word of God. And why crave the Word of God? It says here, that ye may grow thereby in verse 2. The idea is that growing boy type thing. I've got daughters, two years old, and they're growing. And you know, it's quite rare that I see them when they're not either eating food or asking for food. They always want food. They, they're, they're munching on something. They, they eat breakfast. They, they have a big glass of whole milk and then they eat their breakfast. They ate just as much breakfast as I ate and I'm full and they're asking for crackers. They are just constantly consuming food and they're probably burning it off about as fast as we can shove it into their mouths. That's that whole growing boy or growing girl syndrome. As these girls get older, that may taper off a little bit, but you think about the growing boy syndrome. As they get into their teenage years, they basically erect a tent in front of the refrigerator, right? And they're just eating and eating and eating. And your, your, your bill, your grocery bill is doubling because they just are always eating. Why? Because they are growing. And when they're growing, they need something to grow on. They need energy. They need food. They need calories. And that's what the Scriptures say. Desire the sincere milk of the Word that ye may grow thereby. God wants you to grow in your Christian life and there's one way that you will grow. It's not by reading books about the Bible. Now, that may help. But it only helps as much as you're learning about the Bible. It's about learning about the Bible. 
That's how we grow. It's reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, meditating upon the Bible, speaking about the Bible, and then applying the Bible to our lives. That's, that's growth. That's how we grow. The concept is beautifully illustrated in Psalm 119, verse 20. The psalmist says, My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Psalm 119, the psalmist regularly speaks of his longing for God's Word. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I I have a longing. My soul is literally broken because I so desire the Word of God. He craves it. He wakes up in the morning and he doesn't say, oh, I'm so hungry, I need to go get myself a bagel. He says, oh, I'm so hungry, I need to get into the Word of God. I'm so hungry to find out what God could teach me today. I'm so hungry to commune with my Savior. So we desire to grow thereby. Notice what verse 3 says. It says, If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Let's put this together. He says, put off the malice, the hypocrisy, the guile. Put on the desire, the craving for the Word of God, if it is in fact the case that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. My daughters turned two on Thanksgiving Day. On that day, they began to get peanut butter. We had peanut butter pie for Thanksgiving, and that was the first time they'd ever had peanut butter. We tried to keep them away from peanut butter, allergies, all that stuff, whether it's true, whether it's false, whatever, we didn't... Whatever. Doesn't really matter. We said, why risk it? We'll just keep them away from peanut butter until or peanuts until two years old. So we didn't give them any nuts. Two years old comes along, we thought, well, peanut butter pie, that's what we're going to have for Thanksgiving anyway, let's give them a piece. And they tasted it. And then we started giving them peanut butter and honey sandwiches. And they tasted the goodness of a peanut butter and honey sandwich. Some, some of you aren't with me on that analogy, I'm sorry. But they love it. They tasted the goodness of a peanut butter and honey sandwich. And since they tasted the goodness, now they crave it. Specifically the honey. They like honey, honey. They're asking for honey all day. They always want honey. It's sweet. They tasted it and now they've got a craving for it. They want it. Have you ever, have you ever had that? Remember that old Lay's chips commercial? I bet you can't eat just one. Right? Did you ever try that? Just eat one and then, eh. That rest of the bag that's open staring at me, I can just let that go. And of course, you do it once so that you can prove that you can just eat just one. But the fact of the matter is, you get one of those chips in your mouth and you develop a craving for it, don't you? You want another. That's what Peter's saying here. If you have tasted the goodness of God, then you should crave more. You should crave more and more and more. You shouldn't crave manipulating the Word of God through trickery. You shouldn't crave pretending like you're a good Christian, but actually not being one. Hypocrisy. You should crave the sincere milk of the Word of God if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Psalm 34 verse 8 tells us this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. Get the taste of the goodness of God upon your upon your, your tongue. Get the taste of the wisdom of God's Word upon your tongue. See how that wisdom plays out on a daily basis. See how it has saved you from error. See how it has rescued you from your own wicked desires. See how it has redeemed you from a past life of wickedness. Taste it and want more of it. And crave it with all of your heart. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good.
the word that is translated gracious in 1 Peter chapter 2 is the word Christos. It's used seven times in the New Testament. And one of those times is in Matthew 11, verses 29 and 30, which says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is Christos. Light. Gracious. Jesus Christ says that those who will come to Him, those who will taste and see that the Lord is good, those who have recognized the sincere milk of the Word, the pure Word of God, will find that indeed Christ's burden is light and that His burden is gracious. He is a good Master. Have you ever had a good boss? One of those bosses where if you're really not feeling well, you don't even have to go tell him, boss, I'm not feeling well, can I go home? They, they look at you and they say, hey, you're not feeling well, you need to go home. Or that boss that says, hey, you've been doing a really good job, how can I help you do a better job? Or that boss that, you know, something's going wrong in the office and you go to him and you say, something's going wrong and he says, let me take a little bit of time to listen to you. Or maybe it's not a boss. Maybe it's a pastor. Or maybe it's a parent where they just deal with you in such a way that is kind, gracious. Maybe your husband or your wife is that way. How much do we appreciate when someone makes our lives a little bit easier simply by making whatever responsibility we have a little lighter, being gracious? Jesus says, those who come to Me will find that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's gracious. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. He says, To whom coming? That is us coming to God. As we come to Christ... That one who is the living stone, disallowed of men, but chosen of God. Christ, a man repudiated of men, but a man found in favor by God. And those who have accepted Jesus Christ, who have come to Him, are built upon that foundation, that living stone, that, that gracious stone that is the Lord and Jesus Christ. The bearer of eternal life. The stone. And as we are founded upon Christ and built up as a church in Christ, we become, as he says here, a spiritual house, a sanctified and a holy priesthood, and we are built on Christ for a particular purpose. Do you see what it is there in the text? To offer up spiritual sacrifices. To offer up spiritual sacrifices. So we... Come to Christ, who is a living stone. He was rejected of men, but he is accepted of God. He becomes the, the cornerstone that uh, uh, our faith is built upon. We are, as lively stones in Christ, built upon Christ into the church. What we have right here are stones being built upon the foundation, that is Jesus Christ. And we're built for a particular purpose, and that is to offer up 
sacrifices. Well, what are these sacrifices? What are these sacrifices that we are to be offering up unto God? Well, we begin in Romans 12, verse 1. This helps us. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So what is the spiritual sacrifice that we're lifting up to God, offering to God? It's us. It is us. You are in Christ. You became a living stone. You are built into the church and you are put there so that you as a stone can give your life to God's work. It is our body that is the living sacrifice. It is everything that we are. And notice he says it is our reasonable service. It's only reasonable. Consider Hebrews 12, verse 28, which says this, Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So if our sacrifice is ourselves and it is a sacrifice that is acceptable unto God, it is one that is acceptable unto God as we revere Him and as we fear Him. We die to self. Our, accept, our acceptable sacrifice is death to self. Now, what does this not mean? We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning. This doesn't mean, fearing the Lord does not mean that we, we are afraid of Him, as in we're, we're looking behind every rock wondering if He's going to strike us dead. We know that God is a holy God. He is a God of wrath, but His wrath was not poured out upon you. It was poured out on Jesus Christ for you. And so, we don't need to fear God's wrath if we are in Christ because Jesus has taken God's wrath upon Himself. However, fearing God does mean we know what God is capable of. We know that He is a holy God and we know that though Jesus has taken our wrath, there is coming a day when you and I will stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and we will give an account for what we have done on this earth, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And we will suffer loss for those things that we have done which are evil and we will be rewarded for that which is good. And there will be tears on that day as we recognize all of the ways in which we did not do what we ought to have done for Christ. And then He'll wipe away our tears and He will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And so fearing God is knowing that God is worthy of our every breath and we live a life driven by the desire to conform ourselves to His expectations. We continue in verses 6 through 8. Peter now quotes an Old Testament scripture. In fact, he's quoting Isaiah 28. He says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Jesus Christ is that one, that, that chosen chief cornerstone, that one who is elect, that one who is precious. And the Scriptures tell us that anyone who believes on Him, who has that hope, it will not be confounded. Will not be, that word literally meaning, ashamed. 
In Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Paul says this, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Same word here. Romans chapter 10, verse 11, Paul says again, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There's no shame in serving Jesus Christ. When you go out into the world around you, they will seek to shame you for your love for Christ. They will shame you for your service to Him. What do you mean you can't come to my Super Bowl party? Well, it's on a Sunday. There's church on Sunday. What do you mean? Oh, you're one of those. You're really going to be one of those? Bible thumper? Old-timer, old-fashioned, fundamentalist, whatever they want to call you. But the Scriptures say that the one who believes on Him is not ashamed. Romans chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5, Paul says it this way. Paul has a lot to say about this. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. The love of God has been spread abroad in our hearts. And so as we go through this process, as we go through the process of tribulation, which works patience, and patience, which works experience, and experience, which works hope or expectation, and that expectation, which is in Christ, allows us to stand our ground and say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. I will not be ashamed, because without it, I'm hopeless. There's no hope without Christ. All our hope is rooted in Christ and he who has his hope rooted in Christ will not be ashamed. Now, I'm not saying that so that you'll slink and say, oh, I was ashamed once of Christ. It's not what I'm saying. Although, if the Holy Spirit's convicting you, certainly by all means respond to it. I'm trying to paint this in a positive light this morning that we are not ashamed. We are not ashamed of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed of the hope that we have in Him. We are not ashamed. When people roll their eyes because we say, well, God is the ruler yet. Yeah, all these bad things are happening, but you know, God's in charge. And you see those eyes go, oh boy, here He goes again. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of that. I remember when I was in seventh grade, about 15 miles from my school, the Columbine shooting happened. And so I was in French class and all of a sudden a bunch of people with assault rifles and tactical uniforms started running through our schools, locking doors, clearing rooms. Everyone had to get under their desks, the whole works. And in the weeks following, of course, me and my friends would have conversations about it. And I remember one day having a conversation with a group of guys. and I was talking about the fact that 
if something like that ever were to happen, I, I wouldn't be afraid because I know I'd be in heaven. And I had such assurance of my salvation that there was no fear in death. And I remember a good friend of mine, a fellow Christian, started laughing at me. He was afraid that the other guys that were unbelievers in the group would think I was going a bit too far. And so he tried to make light of what I said. And I was so confused on that day. Because I had never really experienced someone trying to make me feel ashamed for my hope in Christ before. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't ever feel ashamed for our hope in Christ. Someone, people may try. But it's not a bad thing to be confident in our hope in Christ. There is no shame in it. And that's what Peter is telling us. That there is a chief cornerstone laid in Zion. Elect, precious. And if we believe on Him, we will not be confounded. We will not be ashamed. He says rather in verse 7, unto us He is precious. That word is valuable. Have any valuables at home? Anything that's really precious to you? Did you get a Christmas gift? My wife and I were talking about watches the other day. I have a pretty nice watch here. I've worn it to death. It's all the paint's rubbing off and all this. It's, it's, it's a very nice watch. But my wife said, you know, it's one of the things that she hates about getting jewelry and watches. She's not a big jewelry person. But whenever she gets it, she's always afraid to wear it because it's precious. And she doesn't want it to break. She doesn't want the watch to get scratched. And so she's actually afraid to wear the stuff because it's precious to her. It's something that, that you hold close because it's precious. And Peter here is saying to you, this Savior, Jesus Christ, this stone of stumbling, this rock of offense, this one that the whole world is offended at and is trying to get you to be ashamed of, to you, He's precious. You hold Him close to your heart. You never want to let Him go. And He's precious. But unto the disobedient, He says, unto those who refuse to believe, He's a stone of stumbling. He's a rock of offense. That is in fulfillment of Psalm 118, verse 22, which says the stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. Also quoted in this prophet, or in this passage is Isaiah 8, verse 14. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, we're plugging our way through. We're almost to our application, so stay with me this morning. In verses 9 and 10, Peter then focuses upon the fact that Jesus is precious and we are called through His grace. He says, but ye, but ye, as opposed to the disobedient, as opposed to those who are offended, Jesus Christ is precious to you. You are not ashamed of Him. Why? Because you are a chosen generation. Ye are a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, for the purpose that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous Light, you know what you're missing out on. And what you're missing out on is an eternity of darkness and hell. And so, we have been called out in order that we would manifest His glory. Very similar to what God said to, ex to um, Israel in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. 
And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Both with the church here in First Peter 2 and with the nation of Israel, God was not speaking of salvation. He was speaking of their purpose. God had created Israel to be a light on a hill, to be a holy nation so that everyone would look at Israel and see that God is God and that there is no God but Him and they would want to be a part of what was happening in Israel. When Israel failed to do that, the Scriptures tell us in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that God set them aside. He didn't cut off their promises. He didn't remove them from salvation. He simply removed that role that they had been given of being God's representative and He gave that to the church. Israel was called to be rightly related to God so that they could show others how to be rightly related to God. That responsibility was taken away from Israel and was given to you. So it is your responsibility now to be rightly related to God so that you can show others how they can be rightly related to God. To be rightly related to God so that when they see you and they see your family and they see what you say and what you don't say and what you do and what you don't do and where you go and what you where you don't go and when you do things and how you do things, they look and they say, you have something different, I see it. And if they are truly coming to the light and understanding the light, they'll say, I want what you have. That is our purpose. And why? Verse 10, which in time past were not a people, but now, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We talked about this last week as we exhorted one another in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to be what we are. We were once fornicators and adulterers and thieves and covetous and railers, and now we are sanctified. We are justified. We are washed. So be it. Live it. And that's what he's saying. That's our purpose. That's what we're here to do. We're here to live it. But what does this mean? What should we do with it? What are the implications of us being called out to represent God? That's verse 11 and 12, and then we'll, we'll apply. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they should behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Literally, literally he's saying abstain from those elements that are, that are associated with the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Don't be a part of them be distinct from the world around you. Having your conversation, that word conversation in the King James literally means our lifestyle. Live a honest lifestyle among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers. Live an honest lifestyle among those who aren't believers. Why? So that as they see your good works, they'll glorify God. You say, well, pastor, I've been around a lot of people and they have watched me live my life and they haven't been impressed. They've ridiculed me. They've made fun of me. Or maybe they were impressed, but they said that's good for you, but not for me. But you know, one day they'll stand before God. And they'll say, God, why can't I get into heaven? God, I'm here. I believed in you. And God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they'll say, but God, what about this, this, and this, and this? Or God, I never knew. Why didn't you tell me? If you'd have made it clearer, if you would have appeared to me, 
And God will be able to point to you and say, you know when they lived a life of honesty and godliness before you? That was me manifesting myself to you. And they will have no excuse. And so the Scriptures say that they will glorify God in the day of visitation, in the day where they stand before God. They will do nothing but fall on their knees and say, God, you're right. You're right. That Prayman family, that Schmidt family, Janet, the Schmalls, the way they lived their lives around me testified of God I should have known. I did know, and I rejected it. And every once in a while, you'll come across someone, and you'll live your lives among them, and they'll say, what's different about you? And you'll say, can I tell you? And they'll say, yeah, tell me what's different. And you'll say, there was a time where I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God, that He came to the earth, that He loved us enough to bear our sins in His own body on the cross of Calvary. He died on the cross to pay your sin and my sin and He rose again three days later in victory over the grave so that we could all have salvation if we will accept it. And they'll say, you know what? I want that too. And they will. And they'll accept it. And that's what we're here to do. To be a light to manifest the glory of God. And so, as we apply this morning, four quick points about what we should be in 2014. Let's be a thirsty church. Let's be a grounded church. Let's be a radiant church. Let's be a Christ-honoring church. First, let's be a genuinely thirsty church. In verses 1-5, through we spoke of that craving for the Word of God. Do you have that? If you are a born-again believer in this room, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. But perhaps you've lost that taste. When I was in China for six weeks, the first four and a half weeks of that trip, we had no American food. We had nothing but Chinese food. And some of it was pretty unique. We hit that four and a half, five week mark. And Missionary Mills, who you all will get to meet in March, he's coming for our missions conference this year. Missionary Mills says, hey, you guys want to, uh, you guys want to get some peanut butter? We said, yeah. Let's get some peanut butter. And you know, okay, fine. You know, yeah. Okay, peanut butter. Sounds great. But we kind of lost the taste for that. And yet we, we went and we got that bread and we got that peanut butter and we spread it on peanut butter sandwiches and you bite into it and you're like, oh yeah, I remember what I've been missing for the past five weeks. And you have three or four peanut butter sandwiches and then you just get the spoon and you start eating the peanut butter because it's, it's so good because peanut butter is just so good. Uh, some of you don't like peanut butter. Again, I'm disconnecting. But, but peanut butter is good stuff. I used to do that in college all the time, just a spoon, eating peanut butter by the, by the spoonful. So good. I had lost the taste for it, but you know, the taste for it never went away. Maybe you're in this room today and you've lost that craving for the Word of God. You did at one time accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You had tasted of His graciousness and you were serving God with all your heart, but then something happened and you got a little cold. You lost the flavor. Let's be a church in 2014 that craves the relationship with God, that craves the Word with God. Let's get a flavor for the Word of God. You say, Pastor, I don't even know where to start. There's a year reading schedule on that back table. If you don't know where to start, 
that might be a good place to start. Maybe you know exactly where to start. Maybe you've done something in the past or you had a routine in the past or maybe just coming to church a little more often is what you need to do. Whatever it is, how can you jumpstart your craving for the Word of God? Because if you're a believer in this room, I guarantee you, when you dig into the Word of God, the craving is going to come. If you will put off the malice and the, the deceit and the hypocrisies and you crave the Word of God, that craving is just going to grow. Let's build a genuinely thirsty church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Let's want to lay aside our lives. Let's want to read the Word of God. Let's want to study the Word of God. Let's want to fellowship among believers. Let's let the love of God that we have toward God and that He has toward us constrain us, pull us in so that we can't even help it. We've got to, got to serve the Lord God. 1 John 4 verse 19 says this, we love Him because He first loved us. Let's love Him with all of our hearts. So let's build a genuinely thirsty church. Now when I go to clear snow from my driveway, I find myself having two viable options for clearing that snow. I've got a shovel and I've got a snowblower. Both are at my disposal. Both are viable ways to remove snow. One of them is far superior than the other. The snowblower is far superior to the shovel. And this is the Christian life. We can either live in the flesh or we can live in the Spirit. Both of them are at my disposal. Both are viable ways to live life. You can live in the flesh. First Corinthians tells us that a, a believer can be carnal. But one that is serving Christ is far superior to the other. So let's build a church this year that's genuinely thirsty for the Word of God and the things of God. Let's build a church that is growing in its craving for the things of God. Second, not just a thirsty church, let's build a grounded church. In verses 6-8, six, six through eight, it speaks of that cornerstone that is Jesus Christ upon which we're built as lively stones upon the foundation that is Christ. No building is going to be strong if it doesn't have a strong foundation. We have that strong foundation, but then each stone must be strong as well. And as we consider the strength of each stone, where does, where, how do we judge if you are a strong stone in the building that is the church? Well, you don't judge it against anyone in this room. I can't look at anyone in this room and say, I'm doing better than them, therefore I'm a strong stone. We don't judge this against some creed or some set of rules. We judge it against the cornerstone. We look at our lives. We look at Christ's life. Remember those Venn diagrams in school? Is that what they're called? Where you have the two circles that that are independent and then they meet in the middle. Where does our life meet with Christ's life? Where doesn't it meet with Christ's life? 
What Christ wants is for those two circles to become one circle where my life is a perfect reflection of Christ. And the strength that I am as a stone can be gauged by how much my circle overlaps with Christ's circle. Because the strongest stone is Christ. And if we're going to be strong stones, it is only as we become like Christ. Let's build a grounded church. Let's build a strong church. Let's build a church that is founded upon the, the, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and built up with a bunch of, of little Christians that look exactly like Him. A bunch of Christians that in word and in deed and in heart and in intention and in love and in humility are just like Christ. Let's be a thirsty church. Let's be a grounded church. Third, let's be a radiant church. As with Israel in the Old Testament, the church has been chosen by God in this age to be His official representation to the unbelieving world. That means we get to shine. We get to shine to the world around us. Are you shining? Are you radiant? Are you shining to the world around you? Does the world around you know that you're a believer? Now, I'm not talking about throwing bricks through their window with gospel tracts on them. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not, not, not talking about shoving our religion in people's faces. But are you shining? Can people see your light in the darkness that is this world? Christ in you. The church is a distinct group. If you were to line up ten people picked at random from Buffalo, you may not know which ones are Christians and which weren't. But if they began talking and acting and speaking, you should know. Because we are a distinct group. Let's be that. Let's be that light in this dark world. Let's show people that there is something different because there is. Let's be that difference. We were once in darkness. Now we are in light. We were once without mercy. Now we are shrouded in mercy. Let's publish it loud and clear. Fourth and finally this morning, let's be a Christ-honoring church. Peter beseeches us in verse 11 as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts. Be strangers and pilgrims, he says. See yourself as visitors here. We already talked about wanting to go home. Have you ever been a real stranger? I'm not talking about going to a close relative's house and living in that house, but have you ever lived in a very strange situation for a while? I bring you back to my time in China. Six weeks in China, and I was a stranger in every sense of the word in China. I didn't know the language. I didn't know the culture. Of course, I was away from home. I was away from the United States. I was living out of a suitcase. I was a stranger in every way, shape, and form. And while they, the, the government there did a fine job at making me comfortable in a manner of speaking, you might say it this way, you can take the boy out of America, but you can't take the America out of the boy. I was an American, through and through, trying to figure out the Chinese culture, trying to live in such a way that I wasn't going to offend anyone. I was not comfortable there in that way. I was not comfortable knowing my boundaries. I was not comfortable knowing what I should and shouldn't do culturally. I had to ask about everything and anything. It was the same way when I went to France. They do that cheek kiss thing in France. 
very unusual as a foreigner to do that. Uh, my, 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 my mother is French, and so all of our, many of our relatives live in France, and so they prepped us, you know, do the cheek kiss thing, and so we had to practice how to do the cheek kiss thing, and, and we did it twice, you know, we went through it twice. And come to find out, we were there for three weeks, come to find out at like week one and a half, that my little cousins in France, third cousins, second cousins, whatever they are, went up and were like, why did they do it twice? Americans are weird. Because apparently they only did the one once, cheek thing once. We were doing it twice, because that's what we were told to do. I don't know if it's based on region or whatever the thing was, but they thought we were weird because we were doing it twice. We thought we were weird because we were doing it at all. We thought they were weird because they ever do it. And so there's a natural discomfort And you know, the scriptures tell us that we're strangers and pilgrims on this earth. We shouldn't really be comfortable here. Now, that doesn't mean we can't live in comfort, but there should always be just that little bit of, you know, I'm not from around here. In our hearts. Because we're not. We're heavenly citizens on a journey. We are strangers and pilgrims. We need to be a Christ-honoring church a church of strangers and pilgrims on this earth. We can assimilate, we can do our best, we can understand the culture, we can, we can do what they do to an extent, but anyone should look at us and be like, you know, you're not from around here, are you? Not in the Minnesota way, not in the United States way, but in the spiritual way. They should look at us spiritually and know that we're not from around here because we have a heavenly home. We are heavenly citizens. And that is our privilege. Let's review this morning. Let's be a, let's build a genuinely thirsty church. Let's build a grounded church. Let's build a radiant church. Let's build a Christ honoring church. This is 2014 for us this year. Let's build. We have a church to build. Now we're a small church. Lord willing, in this year we will see this church grow physically. But we are at the perfect size right now to make sure our foundation is strong. To make sure that we are everything that we ought to be for Christ. Are you thirsty this morning? Let's get thirsty. Are you grounded this morning? Let's be grounded. Are you radiant? Let's be radiant. Are you Christ honoring? Are you from around here? Or is there a a noticeable mark of, of being a stranger and foreigner on this earth? And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't close with this question. All throughout this sermon, I've said, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a fairly small, close-knit group this morning, but may I encourage you this morning, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you cannot confidently say, yes, pastor, I know, I have that hope that is within me. I know that I am a believer. I am on my way to heaven. If you are confused about your salvation, if you are not sure for whatever reason, may I encourage you, come see me. Get it taken care of. Allow that love of God to be shed abroad in your hearts or at least receive that assurance that you are on firm ground and on your way to your heavenly home. Let's build in 2014. Let's build a church focused upon becoming what Jesus Christ would have us to become. Let's pray.